Yo, Chad, what if I told you there's a platform that could completely revolutionize your hiring strategy in a matter of hours? Yeah, I'd call bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit with AI for jobs powered by our friends at This Way Global. Okay, I'm listening. Uh, While everyone else is fishing in the same old talent pools, AI for Jobs can source over 160 million diverse candidate profiles. This Way Global has established unique partnerships with over 8,500 trusted diversity partners. So wait a minute. All of the hard on-the-ground work is already done. That's right, Cowboy. You can discover 300 qualified candidates per job rack instantly. Wow. It's like having a candidate sourcing magic wand. (laughs) Dude, if you had a magic wand, you would have Mexican pizzas all day. Mm. Uh, Stop distracting me, Sowash. AI for Jobs Advanced Matching Algorithm analyzes past applicants using trillions of historical matching events and over 1,600 data points. Now that is what AI should be doing, saving recruiters time on sourcing while they provide a white glove candidate experience. Let's wrap this shit up. I'm hungry. Listen up, kids. Revolutionize your hiring process today by jumping over to thiswayglobal.com and checking out AI for Jobs, where you can learn more about how to leverage AI for your recruiting instead of just writing poems and grocery lists. That is thiswayglobal.com. We out. You already know that Sovereign makes the world's best resume CV parser. But did you know that Sovereign also makes the world's best AI matching engine? Only Sovereign's AI matching engine goes beyond the buzzwords. With Sovereign, you control how the engine thinks. With every match, the Sovereign engine tells you what matched and exactly how each matching document was scored. And if you don't agree with the way it scored the matches, you can simply move some sliders to tell it to score the matches your way. No other engine on earth gives you that combination of insight and control. With Sovereign, matching isn't some frustrating black box, trust us, it's magic, one-shot deal like all the others. No. With Sovereign, matching is completely understandable, completely controllable, and actually kind of fun. Sovereign. Software so human, you'll want to take it to dinner. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? This is the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host in chief joel cheeseman joined as always by my co-host chad sowash my ass and we are we are super jazzed today <laughs> it, it only took four years for us to get lars schmidt on the show lars welcome hey guys it's good to be here has it been four years has it been that long well podcasting for four years last yeah. time we saw you was drunk on a stage in london uh thanks Rackfest. or at least according to chad only one of us was drunk we won't mention <laughs> who <laughs> uh, on our way too. how about that we're we're on I the feel, road 
Yeah, I feel like you. Uh, a lot of people know you, but some don't. So let's let's get the uh, invi- or let's get the indu- introductions out of the way. You have a lot of shit going on on LinkedIn, but you want to funnel it for the audience as founder of Amplify HR and the author of How Millennials Are Redefining HR. I mean, <laughs> redefining HR. How Millennials Are Doing It is my own uh, little title for the book. We can get into that in a little bit. Anything else that we missed there that uh, the listeners should know? That's good. Okay. All right. I did my <laughs> job. Chad, it's it's your ball now. So give give us some background, some story around a book. You, you write a book and this is not, I mean, coloring book for God's sakes. I mean, this is total <laughs> research, big names, big wigs, an enormous amount of focus and discipline to put out a book like you just put out. Did you say this was an e- ego project and Lars wasn't hugged enough as a kid? <laughs> My parents are pretty generous with hugs, to be honest. So, so what, what was the, the, the genesis of the book? The book really came from a lot of things that I had been working on before I actually signed the deal to write the book. You know, so the you know from from the work in HR open source through um, you know the, my first book on, on employer branding for dummies through uh, writing for Fast Company and Forbes and whoever else and the podcast. It was like I had all these different things these different you know, channels, if you will, that were giving me insight into how the field of HR was evolving and what companies were doing that was different and unique. And so I had, you know, I'd been building all of these disparate, you know, connections, research, writings, et cetera, um, before I kind of said, okay, you know what, I need to, I want to package all of this in a way that tells more of a cohesive, you know, full story rather than just focusing on a, a practice or an event or a person. Uh, and so in that sense, like a lot of the the work I've been doing over the last five years was, you know, kind of foundational to the book. So when I, you know, set about to actually start writing the book, I, you know, the ideas, a lot of the research, a lot of the connections and people that I knew I wanted to interview to go deeper were already in place. So I, I wasn't starting from scratch, which was probably the only reason the, uh, the book got written during a pandemic. If I had to do that all from scratch, that would have been uh, a little rough. So you're talking about key shifts from legacy HR to modern HR. What are some of those key shifts that you think are priority for HR and why the hell is it taking so long for us to do it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, so that last sentence assumes that everybody's done it and they have it. You know, I think HR as a whole right now is kind of a spectrum. You know, you have some operators at the leading edge uh, that are doing a lot of the practices that I spotlight in the book. You've got, you know, the other side of that spectrum and, you know, still old school personnel, transactional, yada, yada. And then, you know, the bulk of the field is is somewhere in the middle. Um, And so, you know, for me, it was really about trying to shine a light on what you know, interesting and progressive and modern HR looks like and do it in a really tangible way. So the book is full of case studies and practitioner spotlights and stories of people actually doing the work because that's not me. Um, Kind of bringing that to life really with the hope that that middle kind of tier of the industry can see some of those practices and be like, you know what, I can do that or I can do a version of that. And, uh, And hopefully, you know, kind of move more people towards that more progressive approach to the field. And in writing a lot of books, talk about who you're writing this book for and who's reading it. I I feel like you're very central to sort of North America and your own experiences and contacts, but it has a very global vibe to me. Are you seeing a lot of buyers uh, globally and in what parts of the globe do you see action and how does that stack up versus some of the other books that you've written? 
Yeah, I mean, so certainly uh, the there, it's it's found a pretty large uh, audience in EMEA, and part of that is you know I was able to spotlight different practitioners' work there. You know, my publisher Kogan Page is based out of London. I'm sure that helps. Uh, but I've also built a pretty sizable network uh, in Europe and specifically in the UK. Um, so when I came to launching the book, I kind of had that pre-built audience that was already you know interested in uh, in you know the, the stories and kind of what would be covered. North America would be next, um, you know, not as much in Latin America, um, you know, some in, in APAC. Um, certainly the, the audience has been much broader uh, than the, the employer branding book that I, I wrote a couple of years ago. You know, obviously that's, that's a niche topic. I think it holds up uh, and seasoned people, but it is a niche, whereas this book I think applies to a much broader audience. Let's, let's dig into the employer brand space a little bit deeper just for a minute. Why does HR care now after not giving a shit for decades about employer brand? I mean, what is the major factor in why employers are caring more about brand today than they did two decades ago? Yeah, I mean, because hiring is hard when you're when you're competing for the same types of talent that everybody else is competing for, and you've got to be able to find ways to differentiate yourselves and kind of the employee experience and what somebody's going to get out of working for your company. You know, beyond just being a recognizable brand, and I think that that shift probably happened right around 2011. You know, with the uh, you know kind of ubiquity of social media. Um, and people leveraging, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook in different ways. And so, you know, employer branding has been around for a while, but that was that kind of digital iteration and shift in employer brand uh, is when companies started getting much more deliberate and thoughtful and specific. I mean, back then it was like you threw the hashtag jobs on a tweet and you'd make <laughs> hires off that. Like, I, you know, we, Twitter was our number four source of hire at NPR in 2011. I mean, it was crazy. So, but you know, now that would never happen because there's so much noise and everybody's doing it. Like we were, we were, had a first mover advantage then. Uh, you couldn't do that now, but it's, uh, but yeah, I, I'd think probably right around 2011 is when that shift happened. Isn't there also a layer of covering your own ass as well? Because before Twitter, before Facebook, before LinkedIn, somebody had a bad experience with your organization. They told three people. Now they're telling 30,000. So I, I think there might be more of a reaction to that than because they're trying to, to look for good people. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on how they look at it, right? Like, I mean, even back in the day, like pre-2010, you had Fucked Company. And that was, <laughs> you know, that was a great site. Uh, you know, it didn't allow for individual reviews, but uh, it, it certainly covered some of the, you know, shady aspects of, uh, of companies and how they hire. Yeah. I think if, if you look now... You know, companies, there's a, there's an offensive approach to social media and there's a defensive approach, right? O- offensive meaning uh, actively using those channels to kind of convey what it's like to work at the organization and, and own the reality of it, right? Like the highs and the lows, like, you, you know, good employer branding shares both. Uh, and then there's defensive, which is like, how do we clean up Glassdoor? Like, how do we clean up uh, Indeed or Comparably or some of the other sites out there where people are leaving negative reviews, right? And that's, it's kind of backwards thinking. It's like, well, why don't you address the thing that led the person to write that review? Yeah rather than trying to clean up the review. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's, you can kind of look at Velbus as, as an offense and defensive uh, uh, play. You talk in the book, the sort of the evolution of employer branding, and I'm curious your thoughts on, on how COVID is going to reframe um, employer branding. From our perspective, it seemed like as soon as the, the, the virus and the pandemic hit, some of the first people were to go or be laid off were employer branding managers. Um, so what, what does the future of employment branding look like as we come out of the pandemic? 
Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's uh, what, what I hope it is and what I think it will be is somewhat of a resetting. You know, we, employer branding, it becomes kind of an arms race as more and more companies were investing in employer brand managers and resources and budgets. And so, uh, you know, we, we kind of defaulted to hyperbole and like, look at all the cool shit we've got and look at our, you know, we still sold ping pong tables. Now we sold three flavors of kombucha and, you know, all these amazing <laughs> office amenities. And like, no one really cared about that, but yeah. we didn't, you know, we still sold it thinking they might, but that never really truly was a differentiator for the majority of candidates. And so now we're at a place where obviously offices are, are irrelevant today. That will change. You know, people will be back in offices at some point to some extent. Uh, it won't be the same, but, you know, we'll, we'll have physical spaces to go to for those of us that go into offices. Um, but I think that we are, the language I would like to see start to shift, right? It's not about like, we're the best and we're the greatest and like, let's find all the hype buzzwords and try to insert as many of them we can into our copy. It's let's, let's kind of recalibrate a bit to like, what is the employee experience like here? What's differentiated and what'll be interesting. And I think this will put more stress on employer brand is as more companies that have employees that have the ability to work remotely choose to have either fully remote or hybrid structures, you know, and people can really work anywhere from anywhere, work itself kind of becomes a bit, you know, of a commodity, right? People can easily move from one thing to the next. And so, you know, from a recruiting perspective, it's going to become even more important that you can convey and articulate a clear value prop about why somebody would want to do what they do at your company when they, you know, have dozens of choices of top tier companies they could do that same work from from their same home without having to relocate, right? Like that's that's a huge difference than the world we were in a year ago. So moving from ping pong tables to actually something that's meaningful is, is yeah. what I'm hearing. What, how, how, how refreshing, right? Yeah, yeah. So talking about the opportunity to scale, right? Because one of the things that we have to get ready for in recruiting and HR overall is scalability. So explain what you mean in the book by building for scale. Is that mainly predicated on uh, internal mobility and tech? Where does that go for you? Yeah, for me, the, the kind of lens through, what, through which I looked at that in the book was more about really uh, building foundational elements uh, of the kind of talent, HR, people strategy, however you want to frame it, in the early days so that as you scale and grow, you're building on processes that are designed to scale and grow. And, and you know, historically, we've been terrible at that, right? And it's not, it's not HR's fault. It, it's, there's a variety of factors. But, you know, companies that were in hyper-growth mode, it was like, okay, we just need to, you know, 80% of our HR and people operations budget resources are focused on recruiting. Like, we're just trying to get people in the door. We need more people, people, people. And, you know, you're, you're growing and you're scaling off Excel sheets, and, you know, all, all of these like random, you know, tools and systems that are taped together. And then you hit, you know, 200, 300, 400 people and you're, it, it, you're break, it's, it's breaking. And then, and then you have to kind of go back retroactively and rip out all of that stuff, put in new systems, new tech, new approaches, new leadership in m- many cases. And so, you know, having to do that once you've hit a critical size is massively disruptive the business. And so the approach is more of like, okay, we know that we're going to be going through this growth trajectory. Uh, yeah, we probably need to hire a, a head of people or a CPO earlier than we would have. We probably need to invest in a, a tech infrastructure built for a company that's 500 to 1,000 people rather than 100 
earlier so that when we are at that stage, you know, we, we can still be building on that tech that's in place. So that, that's really the, uh, the kind of, you know, theme of the chapter. Okay, listener, how can you help your employees become more productive? I have answers. How about automating manual and repetitive tasks, giving meaning to data, then allowing that data to actually drive decisions? And how about matching people to your jobs quicker? Well, wait, the Chat and Cheese has a new LLM? No, Cheeseman, I'm talking about Text Kernel. Ah, okay, that makes more sense. What I'm hearing is the groundbreaking concept of, wait for it, yeah, simplicity. <laughs> seriously, though, seriously. Text kernel cuts through the complexities like a tortilla chip through some hot nacho cheese. Oh, my God. Really? Nacho references already. Anyways, Text kernel brings efficiency and productivity to your operations. Text kernel seamlessly unifies your tools and data to drive efficiencies and success. TextKernel is creating new opportunities for your recruitment journey, kind of like adding guac to my barbacoa burrito. Oh, my God. How about extracting meaningful insights from data? I mean, that, that's something. Swiftly matching yeah. people with jobs, automating repetitive tasks. Who knew such advanced concepts were even possible in the land of human resources? Uh, we did, Chad. We did. Dude, wrap it up. I'm a little hungry. Imagine that. Uh, okay, listener, get ready to use today's tech to drive efficiencies and productivity. Visit textkernel.com. That's T-E-X-T-K-E-R-N-E-L.com. Mmm, nachos. <laughs> Isn't that kind of HR's fault, though? Because, I mean, it's our job to be able to bring the business case. And one of the things that we're really bad at in HR and TA is to be able to demonstrate how scalability and what we're doing in our tech affects the actual bottom line, either positively or negatively. So you say it's not HR's fault, but really, shouldn't we take responsibility and start taking accountability for these types of numbers so that we can have the bigger conversations with the C-suite? So I, I'd say yes, but I'd put an asterisk by that because I think if you look at a lot of startups, you know, the, they they have an, an office manager who moves into an HR manager, right? <laughs> they have an HR business partner who is now asked to run the whole team. Like they're yeah. not in those scenarios that I'm mentioning. They they have junior talent that they're scaling with, and so you know, yes, you could say like, shouldn't that person have said like, hey, this is? But like, they don't know. They haven't done that before. So I think I think that is why you're starting to see a shift in, uh, particularly in startups, hiring that more seasoned HR leader earlier on because they do know those things and they can push back and they can say, "Hey, look, I've done this two, three, four times over. Here's what we need and when we need it." Right. So that I, I think you know, yes, that is HR's responsibility, but all too often they have a junior person in that role that's just not equipped to, you know, they don't, they don't have that context. They don't have that, that, that direct experience to be able to steer the leadership team in that direction. There are a couple of things in the book sort of going up a little bit back to employer, employer branding that you talk about in the book that I want you to, to expand upon. One of them is uh, sort of the ongoing performance reviews. Uh, in the book, I think you talk about they should be daily to some degree. And I think a lot of us agree that the yearly performance review Suck. is pretty broken. Yeah. And, and the second thing I think that piggybacks off of that is 
managing burnout, um, which you talk about, which I think the work from home environment has sort of reframed what that looks like. So talk about the importance of those two things, maybe some companies that are that are doing it pretty uniquely. Yeah. I mean, I think in performance, you know, daily is probably a bit much, um, but I think, you know, whether it's quarterly or monthly or whatever the framing is, it's got to be a cadence more than any, like annual reviews are that's just a relic of the past. It doesn't fit how we work. It doesn't fit how people want to be developed and coached and have expectations. Like, am I hitting the mark? Am I missing the mark? Like, what what am I what what do I need to to do better to you know to be excelling in my manager's eyes and and so that you know that that I think is is pretty clear you know one of the case studies I go into uh, in the book is from um, SurveyMonkey which you know they uh, Becky Cantieri their chief people officer walked through like how they shifted from their annual review process to a quarterly review process. Uh, and it was received really well and what was cool about them is they actually then gave away like all the templates they used in that shift. Uh, they open sourced all of that. So, um, so that was one example. And I think, you know, burnout, especially kind of, you know, coming out of 2020 and like, we're still in a pandemic, right? We're not over this yet. I think that every, every employee has been hit hard, but in different ways by all of the circumstances of the past year, right? Whether it's COVID, whether it's working from home, whether it's kids at home, whether it's, you know, the, the conversations around social inequity and Black Lives Matter, like, Everybody has been impacted in multiple angles and multiple ways, and they're carrying with that every carrying that with them every day. For a CPO specifically, or CHRO, whatever the title might be, they've got a really unique burden of all of that because they're going through that as an individual. They're going through that uh, within the context of you know leading their executive team and helping guide all the decisions that they're having to make as an executive team for the direction of the business, and they're going through that for you know their own HR team who is on the front lines in many cases of a lot of these very emotional situations that these employees are experiencing and all of their employees. And they can't talk to their peers like within the organization. They can't talk to their, their colleagues about what they're experiencing. So, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, really robust CHRO peer networks kind of flourish over last year because people needed a place to go and like talk to people who actually understood what they were going through uh, and could, you know, commiserate and console in some cases. But, uh, but I think, too often they were addressing their own needs last and and that really i think uh caused a spike in burnout that we're still carrying today yeah and joel he he loves you know having more empathetic managers and hr those types of things going back to the the i've been burned out on chad since 2017 (laughs) so i'm trying to get some guidance on that you need some peer networks to help you through that buddy yeah no kidding so so you talked about you know a little bit about black lives matter and i mean there's there's definitely a culture shift and not to mention there's a a different i guess you could say conversation about things you can talk about at work yeah. right and things you can't talk about at work i mean things have changed over the past year plus and really moved the needle in so many different areas so as you talk about culture can you talk about what culture might look like or should look like in 2021 2022 to try to get away from the past and how rigid and how sterile it has been yeah i mean you know one of the one of the shifts that i i kind of describe in the book um specifically around the the chro role or cpo role but i think it applies much more broadly than that is this move from being um, infallible, right? This like buttoned up, polished uh, archetype that would say the right things, and you know, always kind of you know, just just super highly polished, right? And like right. 
not real, too vulnerable, you know, to people that are able to be more real and and share some of their own struggles and just just be more human, right? I think that there there's a couple of cases in the book of uh, of CHROs from you know talking about things from their own struggles with infertility to mental health and thoughts of suicide to you know coming out in the office as uh, as gay for the first time and you know and sharing those experiences with their employees and and that those kind of conversations barely ever happened you know, even a couple of years ago. And now I think we're seeing more of it. And I think oh, yeah. this, this whole notion of work and life and separation, like we've all been in each other's, you know, homes through Zoom. We all know more about our colleagues now than we probably ever did just kind of going through this, these circumstances together. And so I think culture is going to be, uh, you know, much more uh, real and, and open and honest than I think before it was very, it could be very manufactured in some companies, you know, and, and it could be, it could be very uh, aspirational, right? Like this is, this is who we want to be like, that's cool, but that's not at all who you are. I think people need to like be more comfortable with who they are, maybe talk about who they aspire to be, but like have that rooted in their reality uh, with more of a direction of where they hope to be. Now, do you think that we are feeling more comfortable with being uncomfortable since we've been so fucking uncomfortable over the last year? And maybe that's what's pushed a lot of this empathy is that it's just being human and living and it's uncomfortable, but we're becoming more comfortable with providing that in, in, and actually having those conversations. Yeah. I mean, I think we're having conversations now that we never had before, right? Like I, uh, I, I can't meet this deadline. Like my three kids are home from school and I'm at my wits end trying to teach them and our Wi-Fi is cutting out. And like, I, I'm sorry, I just, I can't, I can't do this. Like, you know, when, when did we, in the construct of work, uh, did we have people say like, hey, I just, I can't meet this deadline for personal reasons and like have that be acceptable. And not to say that's acceptable across the board, like some managers are probably still dicks about that. But like that, you know, that those kind of conversations, like taking uh, a, a mental health day, like a wellness day, like saying, like, I just, the, the stress of everything is getting me, I, I just need to take today off. Like before it was like, we'd have to hide around a sick day. Like, oh, I'm going to have to go to the doctor. We'd have to make up some excuse. I think that that, that is certainly starting to change. And part of it is just going through this like massive, you know, humanity level event that we've all experienced um, that has kind of knocked down some of those veneers uh, and walls we put up around us and, and, and has given them permission to do so in the context of kind of how companies and employers are looking at their employees. And I think some of the, the support that people are turning to, uh, you mentioned, you've mentioned a few times in this interview is, is open source and, and opening sort of the doors. One of the, one of the stories you give in the book is of uh, Coinbase, um, and for those playing Chad and Cheese Bingo, that's our crypto uh, reference for the show. Um, they used open source for their COVID response, basically allowing other companies to come in and see that. So a lot of our listeners probably aren't even aware of what open source is. So talk about that and maybe some other examples of how companies are, are leveraging that that strategy. Yeah, I mean, so open source broadly, it's a, it was a concept you know started in software. The idea being, uh, if you write a line of code that does X thing, why not give that away and upload that to a common repository that other people can then just use to do that X thing? And over time, other people will take that code, they'll make it faster, they'll make it more efficient, they'll 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 make it better, and so you have you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, uh, of engineers all optimizing lines of code that's available for anyone. 
And so it's, you know, it became the fundamental backbone of much of the modern web that we use. And so taking that kind of open practice uh, approach and bringing it into HR, which, you know, historically we sucked at that. We were all about <laughs> silos and hoarding yep. our data. We wouldn't share anything. And so that, that started to shift around five years ago with the launch of HR Open Source and Google Rework and other platforms. Um, and so I think if you look at it now, I mean, the Coinbase situation is a great example. Like back in late February, they, uh, they published their internal kind of uh, pandemic response uh, plan. And, you know, that event at that time, at that scale, was something that no HR practitioner alive had experienced, right? It's just, we, you know, we haven't had anything like that in, uh, in, in years. And so uh, lots of people were looking, you know, CHROs and HR leaders, their, their CEOs and executives are looking to them for guidance, like, hey, what do we do? How do we approach this? Uh, and being that there was no uh, precedent and there was no playbook, having that Coinbase example um, it, it, the way that it played out was exactly like open source software. So they published theirs. Um, I then created a, an open source doc that included that. And I began curating other resources and news and, and updates from companies and how they were responding. Uh, and then I encouraged other companies to say, hey, look, if you're basing your own pandemic response on Coinbase's doc, then please consider uh, uploading your version of that doc to this common document so that other practitioners can read it. And, you know, within... A week or two, we had about a dozen, you know, or more companies that had all open sourced their pandemic response plans, and I think that was really awesome. instrumental at that early stage when, like, we were, you know, that the the pressure on HR teams was massive. Nobody knew, you know, nobody knew for sure, like, hey, this is the right way. This is how you handle X. Like, we we're all figuring it out, and so being able to see, like, okay, Coinbase is doing it this way, like Sneak is doing it this way, Dashlane is doing it this way. Um, I'm not going to do any of those things exactly, but I'm going to build what I'm going to do off of all of those other things, it was invaluable. So to me, like, uh, you know, the, the use case for open source was firmly established in my view long before that. But that was kind of the moment where, you know, globally people all around the world were borrowing from that doc and then adding their own. Uh, and I think it was just a, a master case study in how open source can work in HR. That is amazing. Well, the, the book is Redefining HR. That's Redefining HR, Transforming People Teams to Drive Business Performance. That's from your buddy, Lars. Lars, we got to have you back. We didn't even get a chance to talk about DEI, AI, and a bunch of other acronyms. Uh, but <laughs> until then, until then. OPP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know me. And then Chad Huxtable. Where can where can people actually find this book? Where can people buy this book? Yeah, so uh, if you just go to redefininghr.com, uh, I make it easy. The links to the book, podcast, uh, any other content and projects and whatever that come out of the Redefining HR umbrella, it's all there. Yeah, if you're not listening to the podcast, definitely listen to the podcast. Lars, once again, man, want to have you back soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on, and I'll see you in four years. All right, buddy. You got it, dude. <laughs> Another one in the books. We out. Thank you for listening to what's it called? The podcast. The chat. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout-outs of people you don't even know, and yet you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. So many cheeses and not one word. So weird. Anywho, 
Be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.chatcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out! How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.